name is Monica, and I'm going to be your host. Before we dive into this episode, I figured I would use this opportunity to introduce myself and this podcast. Um, Also, just for context right now, I'm currently recording this under the sheets of my bed because it seems to be the best spot for recording clear audio. So hopefully you appreciate the fact that I am sweating like crazy right now. So a little bit about me. I'm currently working on my PhD, and I myself am a researcher that uses narrative methodologies, which means that I study stories and how these stories are told. I started Humans of Grad School to talk to graduate students not only about their research and the experiences that they've had in grad school, but also who they are outside of that. In the same way that the super popular Humans of New York shares the stories of people now globally, I created Humans of Grad School to hear the stories of graduate students all over and narrated by the storytellers or these grad students themselves. Oftentimes, grad school and being a graduate student becomes a really large part of our identity, but I wanted to explore who we are in addition to that, because everyone brings their own identities and stories in addition to the work that they do. What makes stories so great is that we all have them, we all know how to tell them, and we've all listened to them at some point or another in our lives. Plus, stories are often really great for everyone to highlight different parts of their identity because when you ask them a question that asks them to tell a story, they're going to story it how they want and how they feel is appropriate for them and their identity. So throughout these episodes, you'll be hearing a lot of the same questions asked to a lot of my guests, but from there, I'll be asking them questions based on what they tell me in their stories. Also, in these episodes, you won't be hearing very much from me, except every once in a while for me to ask my guests questions or possibly pop on to narrate parts of these stories. But overall, the focus is on the stories of my guests. So, stories plus identities plus grad school equals humans of grad school. I really hope you enjoy it. In this episode, I'm joined by Danica, an empath, spark igniter, and lost human. Let's hear her story. So. Okay, yes, I'm already popping on a little bit early. I understand. Just a heads up that my audio quality isn't the best quality it could have been for this episode, but this is kind of the thing that happens when you record a podcast for the first time. First question, who is Danica? I was not expecting that as the first question. I am going to say an indefinite set of multiplicities. So I really subscribe to the idea that the version of me today is not going to be the version of me tomorrow and so on and so forth, but also Today, I could be a multiple of different selves, depending on the context and the interactions I have and the things that are brought before me. The first thing that popped into my head when you asked that was honestly like the origin of my name. So whenever people see my name, they tend to pronounce it as Danica because, you know, the spelling reflects that phonetic pronunciation. 
but it actually, it's Croatian. Um, and I'm really lucky to be named after my maternal grandfather's mother. So my great grandmother, Danica. So when my parents had me, I was their firstborn. They wanted to honor, you know, the intergenerational female legacy of our family. So I was really lucky to be named after her. But they just kind of shifted the pronunciation to Daniga. And that was also carried forward with my mom's name. So my mom's name is Denise. And again, it's an iteration of Danica, which I think is really beautiful. Because that tends to be the first thing that people flag about me whenever they meet me. It's the name that the more I've grown up, the more I realize just sets like a really unique tone. And then they're not sure what they're going to get when they start talking to me. (laughs) But yeah, I'm going to go with an indefinite set of multiplicities. So I guess, for example, today, you know, my different selves that I've moved through was self as partner. Uh, romantic partner, self as friend, self as colleague, self as researcher, self as empath, self as lost human, self as woman, self as white woman, to be more specific, if I'm going to get into the intersectional identity piece, uh, white cisgendered woman, who took the morning to read a bit about the patriarchy. So you know, that's all good. (laughs) But upon like further reflection, I think I really like that question because I don't think we give ourselves enough time to stop and pause and, you know, really sit with and dig deep about if you were asked that question on the street randomly and not in a, you know, more formal podcast interview, what would you say? And would you be like really caught off guard? Are you uncomfortable? Does it make you excited? Does it, you know, strike the fear of God into you that you don't know who you are or how you even want to begin to tell that story? Yeah, no, I really, I appreciate that one. What do you think caught you off guard about this question? I think the directedness. And I also think, you know, we at least you and I, given our age demographic, we were raised and we've grown up in the me generation where everything is, you know, or everyone I should say is self-involved. And I'm not saying that with any value judgment attached, but I don't think we take the time to necessarily, you know, give people the space and opportunity to just hear each other out. So I think just starting this podcast with you just giving me that space and just putting all of the attention on me is something that's both uh, exciting and terrifying, but also foreign. And I'd be remiss to say if that also didn't catch me off guard, because I think as women, we tend to not want to take up space and talk about ourselves because we've been, you know, socialized that a good woman or the right woman, the ideal kind of womanness is to make yourself as teeny and compact as possible, as small as possible, so as not to disrupt anything or anyone or take up space. And that's something that I'm really trying to start unlearning and giving myself like the kindness and generosity to allow myself to take up space and answer a question like you just posed to me without any sense of guilt or shame or regret that someone listening may just, you know, say, oh, I don't, okay, I guess we're going to hear about her. Um, I hope that makes sense to you. It does. It does. You know, and we talk about taking up space. And what's so interesting about this is when I ask you who you are as yourself, you occupy multiple spaces and selves 
in this. So, you know, as partner, as friend, as colleague, as researcher, as empath. And I was wondering if we can talk a little bit more about these selves that you find yourself engaging with today. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to start, maybe there's a, (laughs) you provided quite the list. So self as partner today, what does Danica as partner look like today? So today I think, and I'll just, I'll preface this with my pronouns are she, her, and hers. So I'll be referring to myself in those terms. But I think she woke up today and uh, Danica as partner felt at peace, but also I'm going to use the word or words, I guess, less guilty. So one of the things that I've been navigating as a person that also affects all of the other selves that I occupy on a day is codependency. So I am, and I hate to admit it aloud, <laughs> I'm still working on that, but uh, a codependent person. So what I mean by that is for the longest time, I have looked for my identity and sense of self and things that are exterior to me and sometimes to a toxic fault. And one of those is definitely with romantic relationships. Like to put it quite frankly, uh, for those who may have heard of this term or engage with the term, like I am a serial monogamist. I just go from relationship to relationship and never really gave myself room to breathe on my own or be on my own, which I thought for the longest time was a really, you know, toxic kind of pattern of behavior to be in. I've learned to acknowledge and respect what that pattern of behavior has allowed me to become and the ways in which I've now grown and can, you know, look on those experiences with gratitude instead of regret. I don't ever want to look at it as regret, but going back to like waking up today as, you know, Danica as partner, it's not feeling uh, guilty that I'm starting to take time for myself because one of the things Uh, that's most striking as a codependent person is because you're always looking to these exterior factors and principles and belief systems to find yourself is you end up losing yourself and not giving yourself enough time and space to just be with yourself, which again is something that I'm trying to hold and unlearn and be gentle with. I'm incredibly lucky to have the partner that I do because I think sometimes depending on who you cross paths with in your life, we're all coming from different, you know, backgrounds in terms of the way we've been socialized into our gender identities. So, you know, for example, I could be with a partner right now who would just see me as taking time for myself as being selfish. And there's no, again, no value judgment attached to that. That is just how they understand and, you know, work through their value systems because maybe they were raised to believe that, you know, women who take time for themselves are selfish because they're not being selfless. They're not falling into that, you know, selfless woman ideal or category or what have you. So today, knowing that I was going to be recording with you and locking myself in my home office and taking time to talk with you, I woke up really peaceful and not guilty for knowing that I was going to take a good chunk of my afternoon to to talk with you. A couple years ago, 
I probably would have woken up in a panic thinking that I could be doing so many other things during those couple of hours for other people and probably for a romantic partner that I just would have never even entertained the idea of this opportunity. And again, that's neither here nor there. I'm not going to hold that against my past self, but I'm just going to acknowledge it for what it was or what it could have been and then be thankful that we're actually here talking today. How do you think you got to this space from where you were a few years ago? So I'm going to say this in hopefully what is a really optimistic and like positive, you know, tone, but therapy. At the beginning of my master's, I'm going to say, I think I finally hit what would is what I could at least articulate as like a breaking point where I felt so deeply lost and out of touch with myself that I really needed something. And I didn't know what it was at first. I'm also a very anxious person and an overthinker. So the first thought in my head was, oh, maybe you feel lost because you're uh, chemically imbalanced. So maybe you would benefit from a medical or drug intervention. Why don't you explore that? But at the same time, when I entered my master's, I had an incredible cohort of people that, again, moving from undergrad to graduate school, this cohort of people thought different ways. They thought really deeply, really systematically about the world around them. And there were many young women, you know, two of which are still my absolute best friends who were already engaging in therapy. And I was so in awe of how vulnerable they were already being with themselves at, you know, a very young age in their twenties, regardless of what brought them to that point. But after seeing and talking and hearing about their stories, I just kind of thought to myself, why the hell am I not doing this? Or like, is this, is this the sign I, I needed? Did I just actually need to be surrounded by other people to not feel so alone and, and isolated? So it was, you know, that fall term in my master's where I remember I called my mom and Take your time. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, so I remember uh, during that fall in my master's, I called my mom and I just point blank said to her, I'm going to go muster up the courage to call a psychotherapist because I told her that I just could not handle being in my body, being in my mind anymore. And that felt so good. <laughs> I really, really wish that I could like bottle up that relief and just give it to anybody because it's just, it's so, it's such a gift to be able to get to that place with yourself where you can be so gentle and, and kind and yeah, those are the two words I'll probably keep coming back to a lot because they're a lot of what drives me uh, today. But uh, yeah, after that call, the rest was history. I ended up not having to do the therapist runaround. Uh, and by that, I mean, I know I have a lot of colleagues and friends who want to start therapy and then it's about finding the right fit, like a good pair of shoes. You want someone who you know 
uh, you're comfortable with. Because if you're not comfortable, you're not going to get into the deep, dark, you know, weighty kind of stuff that you know you need in order to start to grow. So I found a therapist who I'm still working with today about four years later, and she is everything I hoped therapy would be. And I know I'm really privileged and lucky to say that because I know that some people just have horrendous experiences or the experience may not be what they wanted and maybe they have to switch therapists for whatever reason. But whether or not therapy is something that a person feels like they could benefit from, I think the main, I guess, strategy or tool that the therapeutic space gives a person is the time to self-reflect like the quiet alone time. It helps again in the therapeutic space because you have another person there to dialogue and talk through. And they also have training and, you know, a variety of theories and ways of thinking about the world that can help you better self-reflect. But if we want to, I don't want to sit here and say that everybody should go in therapy because again, there are socioeconomic barriers to therapy there are so many you know um parts about our culture especially in north america where therapy just may not be possible for some people maybe it's not a safe thing for them to engage with you know structural and and equitable barriers that also add to that but you know for whatever it's worth someone's version of therapy could just be having a really open and honest conversation with their closest most trusted best friend or sibling or parent but I really think it's that quiet alone and I'm going to add the descriptor of uh, vulnerable space so one of my good friends or I actually I think both of them have said this to me uh, at some point in time those two women that I met at the beginning of my master's their tagline is I don't trust anybody who's not in therapy and I think the uh, you know the main sentiment behind that is I really just don't have the time and energy to engage with people who haven't taken the time and energy to engage with themselves because the more I feel, at least the more you engage with yourself, the better you are at engaging with other people because you're more self-assured and at least confident in your needs and what you're looking for. And even, I guess, more uh, genuine as a human because you're not, trying to avoid all the really messy, uncomfortable, conflict-ridden parts of interaction that, you know, they're unavoidable. We're human. We encounter it every single day. So I owe the last couple of years in graduate school and to me as a person to therapy. And I really don't want to stop. And I don't think I'll stop. I think there's a way that either you can keep engaging with you know, a trained professional, or you can take what you've learned and just implement it into your daily practice. So I'm not leaving her yet. But if the day comes when I have to, I feel at this point, more confident that I'll be okay on my own. Yeah. And by okay on my own, I mean, I will have come to the place where I can trust myself enough to take care of myself. I think sometimes when people ask, oh, so you stop therapy, are you fixed? That's the comment that kind of, you know, sends shivers down my spine. And that's, again, you can't fault them for that, but that's more of the biomedical model of how we look at mental health and therapeutic intervention that, you know, if you engage with a particular intervention, it's going to fix you at that point in time. You're then fixed. 
I'm doing air quotes. She was, in fact, doing air quotes. And you conquered it. And I don't think it's about conquering anything. I think it's about just living with all of these things going on inside yourself. And I think it'd be really boring to be conquered because then what, what else do you have going on? How do you know that you're alive? You know, with this and as you were talking, so you occupy these selves on a daily basis and they're interchangeable, always changing, ever flowing. Do you think that Danica today is also all of the things that you've listed, but also more vulnerable and confident and kind and gentle and reflective with herself? I think so. I think yes, but also still a work in progress with all of those. But I think I could at least with as much integrity and self-assurance as I can muster right now say that I am at a point where I'm tired of feeling small and I'm tired of walking through the world and through different social systems aware of how our culture and particularly Western culture wants women to feel small. There's a, a memoir book that I've been reading I guess not even reading. I think it's my new manifesto of how to live my life. Uh, But it's called Untamed uh, by Glennon Doyle. And she is one of the most beautiful writers I've ever encountered. But the main reason I just want to bring up this book now is that, you know, the main, I'm going to say takeaway message that really feeds into the title of her book, Untamed, is that she does a self-exploration in this memoir of all the ways in which herself as a woman has been tamed into what she calls cages. So these are, you know, predetermined scripts that as a woman you have to be. So your body has to look a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. You have to feel a certain way. Your career should, you know, end up with certain goals such as, you know, caring for others or being selfless because that's what a good woman should do. If you want to have children, there's uh, a certain script to be the most ideal and responsible mother. So when you don't fit into those scripts, you feel a deep sense of shame and guilt, which then, you know, births a very toxic cycle of how you talk to yourself and even think about the other women around you. So through her self-exploration, she talks about her taming and then how she's trying to untame herself with the main sentiment that it's kind of, it's rediscovering her spark as a person. And she uses the metaphor of uh, finding her wild again. So the spark in yourself is your wild. It's the person you were meant to be before the world told you how you should be, or the person it wants you to be in order to fit into these predetermined systems and cultural values and cultural mandates, men or women, point blank, would benefit from this memoir. (laughs) This is not a paid endorsement by any means, but it's just such a beautiful combination of words and anecdotes that if given the time and space to engage with, I think it has the potential to be really transformative, or at least it was for uh, myself. You know, you had said that you're tired of feeling small. What is it that makes you feel big? 
or maybe helps you find your wild? That's a really beautiful question. And I honestly am going to segue into my graduate school experience. I came across a a quote on Instagram uh, yesterday or the day before talking about um, what it means to be in a doctoral program and to work towards a PhD. And it was just so clever, but also profound in the most simplest of terms Uh, Because it essentially boiled down to the idea that the PhD is going to make you question so many things around you and about yourself, and it's going to break you down into your most vulnerable form, but then it's going to build you back up in new ways because of this exposure and vulnerability. So for me, I think graduate school was the beginning of that wilding process in terms of it was the space where I found myself around like-minded people. And by like-minded, I'm not talking discipline specific, uh, even though, you know, I started my master's in English literature and it's so great to be around other bookies, I'm going to call them. Uh, But it was this space with like-minded people who also wanted to ask really big questions or who were skeptical what the media or their culture or their socializing agents were feeding them, that they just wanted to sit and talk about it. And it felt so welcoming and safe to do that and to just start exploring that I was caught off guard, but I also felt, I think, like, welcomed home in, like, the most sincerest Sense of the word. So it's been like throughout the last couple of years where not only did I start therapy at the beginning of graduate school, but I was entering a space that was, at least I'm going to say, more conducive to that wilding process just by virtue of, you know, the, the philosophical element of graduate school. So again, philosophy is asking questions and being a doctor of philosophy. So what the PhD stands for is just being, you know, an expert in question asking as far as I'm concerned. So I think that's the way in which I'm really trying to appreciate my PhD and the experience. Yes, there is, you know, social weight that gets attached to this notion of being a doctor, especially within the medical sciences. But when it comes down to it, I don't think I could see myself anywhere else. I am exactly where I need to be, I think. How did you get to where you needed to be? How did you get here? In terms of? Grad school. Grad school. So this is a little bit of a fun, I'm going to call it a fun story, but it's also one that I just, you know, haven't really embraced that much until the last maybe year or two. So to give you a bit of a trajectory of the, the many, I'm going to call them pivots that I've made. I first applied to Western for psychology because 18-year-old me felt like she wanted to help people and she wanted to help people with their emotions and she wanted to, at that point in time, fix people. I'm going to use that word. She really liked being a fixer and she liked the way she felt in that role as a fixer. 
So I started first year in psychology and although psychology was interesting to me, it wasn't like as explosive and attractive as I thought it was going to be. And I was really also turned off by statistics. I had no use for numbers. So that was also a red flag. But uh, one of the courses I was taking just as like a general 1000 level course was English literature. And throughout high school, I was always good at English. And by good, I mean, I mean, like, I got the high grades, it came easy to me. As a kid, I was a really avid reader, to the point where, you know, my parents and I would go to chapters, I would get a book, they'd buy it for me, and I'd finish it on the ride home. And they'd be a little upset because they just spent a lot of money on a book where they could have just let me read it in the store. Um, but yeah, so I was always drawn to stories and English and just talking about stories. So within that first year of university, thinking for the longest time that I was meant to fix people, and I was at that point thinking about being a clinical psychologist, I switched programs. And the other interesting thing was that at this point in time, I didn't see necessarily the utility in English. I just thought I could, you know, do it for my bachelor's. So I was thinking to myself, okay, well, this isn't necessarily going to get me a job. So, you know, on that same line of fixing people and wanting to put good out into the world and do the social good, I was also thinking, well, I like reading and I like fixing people. So law seems like a good profession. Like, why not be a lawyer? Because I'm going to read. And uh, I come from a family of divorce. So I thought, why not family law? Because I can fix, read, do the social good thing, you know, that checks out. That sounds great. Like, let's go for it. So I pivoted without telling my parents that I switched my majors and ended up completing um, my honors bachelor's in English literature and criminology. So for the latter years of my undergrad, I was, you know, seriously contemplating law school. So then I get into my third year and throughout my undergrad, I started in my first year. So this is the one thing that hasn't changed, which has led me to where I am today. I started volunteering with a health promotion program uh, that was sanctioned out of the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western called Learning It Together. So it was a peer mentor program for undergraduates to get paired up with a little buddy in grades one to three. And it was in partner with the Thames Valley District School Board, so our local public school board in London. And I started doing that in my first year as just a volunteer, and I really liked it. Uh, I met a lot of really nice friends. It was a good way to just like get out from the Western campus and like go out into the community. Uh, and I also just, I like kids. So it just made sense for me at the time. So I did that in my first year. And then there were different ways that you could move up in the program to get more responsibility and leadership roles. So in my second year, um, I applied to be an assistant team leader. So essentially, since it ran after school at every school site, you would have two team leaders that would oversee about, you know, 20-ish little buddies and Western volunteers. So I spent two years at Chippewa Public School. Uh, so did the team lead thing in my second year. And then transitioning into my third year, I thought, okay, I can take on a bit more responsibility. This is fine. So I applied to work on uh, the executive 
team for this program. Uh, so luckily that worked out. So I stepped into an executive role that was kind of in flux at the time, but we had a really great team. And at that point in time, the program director, Dan Passifume, who I still keep in touch with, with his sister too. And uh, Dan was great. So uh, we were working together on the team, but within this third year, the program really started to encounter some issues with technology. So we had all these little buddies coming to our Western volunteers, really excitedly asking them to add them on Facebook or Instagram. And then our Western volunteers just turned back to us and asked the executive team, what do we do? You know, how do we handle this situation? So our team and then Dan and I got really hung up on this because at least for us, it was a surprise that this young demographic was engaging in these online spaces and were so active and aware of what was happening. So Dan and I brought this to the program's faculty supervisor. So enter Dr. Lori Donnell, who has changed my life for the better. So Lori is currently my doctoral supervisor and the Dean of Research in the Faculty of Nursing. But Lori has been overseeing learning it together for years. And she does this just because she believes in the program and she believes in the good work that it does. So I met Lori at this point in time in a completely, you know, informal volunteer context coming to her with this question of, what do we do with kids in tech in this program context? So we started to ask those questions with Lori. And long story short, Dan graduated and moved on to attend medical school at U of T. He's going to be a phenomenal physician. And I put myself forth to apply for the director position of LIT for my fourth year. So again, for one reason or another, I got the position. And now I was working very closely with Lori uh, because the director was the touch point for the program with her. And we decided that the program would really benefit from some kind of pilot study to see if maybe we could start integrating digital literacy into, you know, the, the activities and the resources that we were doing with these primary school kids. And we appointed uh, two research coordinators, Emma Bender and uh, Stephen Ling, who took over some work from the previous year with Dan from a friend of mine, Matthew Giro, who kind of again started this whole brainstorming thing about a pilot project. So it was in the fourth year of my undergrad where all of these pieces kind of fit together. So I was finishing my bachelor's, directing LIT, starting this pilot study with Lori, just because I, I felt a pull to it. And then came the time to apply for grad school. And I had this really deep pull again to stay and to stay in the academic space. I didn't know why at that time, but I just knew I wasn't done yet. So I applied for uh, my master's in English because there was, again, a very deep intimacy building with that kind of work within myself. And I was no longer comfortable with the idea of law school. It's nothing against the profession. It just did not seem like the right fit. I didn't, you know, outright dismiss it, but it wasn't 
I guess, a priority or the most beautiful version of myself that I could see like unfolding. So I applied for my master's at a couple institutions and then I ended up choosing Western again. And I chose Western because I wasn't done with Lori and I wasn't done with this project. And Western was home at this point. So I thought, let's just stay and let's see what happens. So I graduated undergrad, spent the summer at home and then came back uh, to dive into my master's and to keep doing this pilot work. Because again, now I know research is a very long process. So uh, it wasn't just, you know, a one shot couple week, you know, heyday of let's get information and we'll write about it and it'll be great. I really started to learn the process of everything involved in the research we do now especially as doctoral students. So yeah, I came back and my master's was again in English literature, but I also through the orientation of my master's found out that there was a way to still kind of engage with the law, uh, human rights piece that again, I studied in my undergrad. And if I ever decided to pivot back to law school, it could be useful. So I also enrolled in a graduate specialization in uh, transitional justice and post-conflict reconstruction. Uh, So that is housed under Western sociology department at their transitional justice and post-conflict reconstruction center. So the TJ center. So I did that uh, in collaboration with my master's and that really looked at Uh, you know, international law that came out of the Nuremberg trials after World War II. So the darkest parts of our global humanity uh, that really changed the ways we think about justice and reconciliation and making amends for just massive human rights violations. I'm extremely glad I did that course. And, you know, it, it really helped hold a lot of questions and just ways of thinking about the world that I think complemented my English degree. So again, worked myself through the master's and was coming to the end of my work with Lori still happening. My master's was a one-year program. And when that happened, I just knew that, again, I needed to stay. There was a pull. Some people may call this the safety bubble of grad school. And I can really appreciate that because, again, you're not out in the real world. You're not, I'm air quoting the real world, because, again, there is so much that goes on in the academy that gives you that life experience. But you're not working a corporate job. I'll put it that way. So I decided to take a year off because I wasn't sure at this point if I wanted to pursue a PhD in English, because again, I had the training and you need substantial master's training to enter a doctoral program. So I took a year off. Um, I worked a couple of tutoring jobs and student support jobs, but it was through this year off where I was wrapping up the pilot work with Lori, where she kind of started to ask me questions if I was interested in keeping on this work with, you know, kids and technology and understanding patterns of behavior and just like really being in this space. And admittedly, yeah, it was really interesting. And I didn't want to give it up, but I didn't really necessarily know how I could pivot into doing that kind of work. But again, I'm giving credit to Lori for this because she has a very gentle and sincere way of asking you questions and assessing your answers and then giving really open-ended but, you know, guided possibilities of where you can go. So 
one of the things that Lori uh, told me about was the current doctoral program that I'm now in as her doctoral student, which is health information science that is cross-listed between the Faculty of Information Studies and the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western. There's a couple other programs uh, across Canada that are very similar to it in terms of program goals and outcomes and uh, training. So this program is so interdisciplinary in nature that the scope of inquiry I believed and Lori believed could offer me the space to keep asking these kinds of questions about kids and technology and do it in a way that's still really engaged with the, I'm going to say like the humanity side of my training up until that point, because again, it's not a hard science, like in the biomedical field, Um, it's more of the softer sciences, social science inquiry, you know, related discipline. So within that gap year, I worked on the rest of the study uh, with her, sat down with myself and did kind of an assessment of the worst case is I apply and I don't get in. And then we figure it out from there. But the better case is I apply and I get in. And then we're just going to see where it goes. So that is exactly what I did. And for one reason or another, I'm going to use that expression again, they saw something in my application and with Lori's support and willingness to keep working with me and keep being a mentor to me, I accepted and I have been in this program since uh, 2018. So that is how I got here, I guess. (laughs) In the most roundabout, (laughs) slow burning way. It was always there. It was just never in front of my face enough for me to recognize it and just say, oh, okay, this isn't, this is more than a volunteering hobby. This is more than, and I think for the longest time I thought I was just really lucky that everything worked out, but I think there was more intention and more drive on my part to kind of forge this path for myself that I'm still getting comfortable, you know, owning up to and, and finding that credit in because I don't, again, still process. I'm still trying to, you know, be very kind to myself and say, no, it's not because a series of random people decided, Hey, let's try her out. It's because you also worked really hard to like get where you are. So you deserve to apply and you deserve whatever outcome it is. So that is why I am currently heading into my third year as a PhD student in health information science at Western. And as a side caveat for some who may be listening and think, okay, well, she's never even left Western. So clearly that's a cry for not wanting to change and, you know, not wanting to leave the academy. I'm very comfortable and my counter argument to that is after moving between different faculties and departments, you may be on the same campus but you are not having the same university experience across all those like departmental cultures and groups of colleagues. It is a very radical thing to kind of do that pivoting work because you're starting from scratch every single time. So it's not a safe haven and it's not comfortable. It's really uncomfortable and it can be really scary at times, but for what it's worth, I wouldn't trade it at all. So then 
you know, overall, you talk about how this process can be uncomfortable and scary and you're pivoting and it's, you're at the same university, but you're in a different world or engaging in different conversations and ways of knowing like overall in going through these processes, like what has your grad school experience been like for you? I think the word I want to use is unforgettable. And I think I want to use that word because I don't think there will ever be a point in time where I look back on these years that were so uncomfortable at times and so painful because of the changes that I'll look back with regret or that I'll want to wish this time and these memories away. I really think that it is a defining moment in the person that I'm continually becoming every day. And I also don't want to attach a positive or negative value judgment to it because I think it's both all the time. And I don't think I would be doing it justice if I kind of umbrellaed it with, oh, it's been the most traumatic experience or it's been the most optimistic experience and enlightening experience. So I think I just want to stay with unforgettable because it's a term that captures both and it welcomes room for both. And I mean, at this point, I'm really hoping to just, you know, kind of roll into a postdoc wherever that is, because the thought of not being a student anymore is kind of sad, but lifelong learning is something we can engage in and it's something we should engage in, in my opinion. So the roles that will kind of fall out of my grad school experience, again, I'm hoping they'll be unforgettable, but I know that they won't ever be like this when you're really learning uh, about yourself as a student. See, what's so interesting is I was going, my next question was going to be, what do you think you've learned about yourself throughout your experience in grad school? That's a good question. I think the best response I can offer is I am a lot stronger and capable than what I thought I was prior to entering grad school. I think that undergraduate fourth year version of myself would be proud of who I am now. I hope so. If I could go back and ask her, I would. But I think what it's just really shown me is that there are ways of thinking to engage with the world and with the people around you that can be scary, but I'm strong enough to do it. And I am going to directly quote Glenn Doyle, her, one of her mantras is we can do hard things. And I think now I'm at the point where, yeah, I'm in a doctoral program and some people may see that from the outside as being really hard. And yeah, it can be at times, but we can do hard things and we can get through it and I can get through it. It may not be linear and it may not be painless and it may not be enjoyable at times, but it's not impossible. So with this, how do you think you would describe yourself as a researcher? (laughs) Oh, Monica. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to say empathetic. And the reason I say that is because the, or at least from what I've learned from Lori 
and watching her work and from what I've learned from some of my closest colleagues is that those who are really passionate about research put themselves so fully into their work that they feel and hold so much for the world around them and for complete strangers if they're doing human participant research that they are just some of the most empathetic people you could ever come across. And the circles I run in, I'm really lucky that the colleagues and the co-authors and the peers I have are just really kind and empathetic people. So the self as researcher is a role or an identity that I treat with as much gentleness as I can because it's a privilege to be able to have some kind of social authority where I can ask strangers or engage with strangers about their lives in some of the most intimate ways, technology being one of them and minors or kids, children, all of the descriptors we call those who are younger in age than us, you know, about their worlds. And I think that without empathy and gentleness, I don't think we could necessarily get some of the most rich and genuine, you know, research outputs. And by outputs, I mean just knowledges, ways of thinking in, you know, dynamic uh, possibilities or taking the world or the way we see things and then imagining a more equitable, more beautiful, more truer version of how we want things to be as a result of this kind of work that we do. So I will also say that (laughs) Self as researcher that I'm, you know, equating with this idea of being an empath does have a price. And the price is that you feel everything so intensely. And I'm starting to get a better handle on how to let myself feel everything intensely. But it is incredibly exhausting. And I can see you nodding your head because I know that you know what that means um, because of the work that you do. Uh, And, you know, pediatric oncology is something I have so much respect for the the people that work in that domain. And then you as a researcher who engages in that domain, because there is just so much emotional labor that goes into unpacking what those spaces and contexts are like. Hi, it's me again. So quickly, just to provide some context here. My current research examines the caregiving stories of pediatric oncology nurses, and my master's research examined the experiences of young adults who had cancer when they were children, as well as their caregivers. So in conducting research that's attuned to these experiences and where you're openly talking about and discussing these experiences with your participants, at times it can get pretty emotionally heavy and draining, especially if you like myself and Danica, are a highly empathetic or empathic person. It is worth it. And then I think it's one of the most incredibly beautiful things about being a researcher uh, that you can do. But I am not going to sit here and lie and say that it's easy. (laughs) So, you know, in thinking about this, And understanding how much empathy is required and in being an empath, how emotionally draining all of that research is. You know, when thinking about your research, what about it draws that empathy from you or draws those empathic feelings? 
So because I'm formally enrolled in health information science and more particularly because I'm really interested in this intersection of kids and digital technologies, the pull for me was really being able to do research in a space that engaged with this idea of growing up in a world where technology is just around you all the time and to be more specific, digital technology. So I'm thinking specifically Web 2.0. So with social media and the ways that we both consume and produce information online, this pull comes from a really painful part of my history as a human being. So throughout most of my childhood and adolescence, right before university, I was a competitive dancer. I did ballet, I did tap, I did jazz, I did contemporary, and I really loved it. But there was a period of time where that kind of extracurricular training and familial trauma and, you know, adolescence in that point where you're trying to figure out who you are all compounded on each other. And I found myself in a spot where I was, I think, in well, initially anorexic and then moved into now what I think is defined as orthorexic. So a very intense preoccupation with controlling food and exercise and just being so wrapped up in your bodily form and how your body looks and everything. So there's a bit of body dysmorphia in that as well, that I really started relying on the internet and websites to get me information And, you know, my 26 year old self now can identify that what I was reading at like 15 and 16 was garbage because it was all from these, you know, eating disorder, like community groups that were enforcing and supporting the behavior. I was getting information on, you know, what, what are calories and how do calories affect your weight and how does exercise play into that? What is a caloric deficit? And oh, wow, if I really put my mind to this, I could, you know, radically change my body in a short amount of time by doing so many practices. So again, I'm not looking at it with regret, but that was a point in my history where being young and impressionable and inquisitive and unsure about the world around me and who I was, met health information and met the internet. And it ended up being a really toxic mess. Sorry. It ended up being a really toxic mess that has taken me a good decade to come out of. So although my research isn't particularly related to eating disorders, I think that's a barrier I've put up psychologically that I just maybe, maybe down the line, but I am nowhere near ready to let that be a part of my life so intimately and closely and consume my attention again. But it's that ache and that pull to that period in time that has really set the stage for why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So again, even though it's not directly related to it, that's, that's the slow burn inside me that is, remember that time in your life? Yeah, okay, well, now you have an opportunity to do some work that can impact, you know, the ways in which this intersection unfolds for younger people. And I think, and this seems to be more evident the more graduate students I talk to, but 
if you don't have a genuine interest in your topic or a genuine, I'm going to call it an ache or a pull towards it, the amount of work that goes into attaining a PhD will just be so overwhelming and you won't necessarily get the most out of the experience as you probably could. I like to believe that we're all graduate students for a reason and that if we dig deep enough, there's an intimate pull, whether it's related to, again, personal trauma or nostalgia or maybe just deep curiosity. And that's something that does it for you as a human. But yeah. What are you hoping will be the implications of your research? I think at this point in time, the implications that I'm hoping for are going to be and this is where we come full circle, is going to be literature. I am, and Lori is, really on board with the idea of putting out a children's book of some sort, and also perhaps a book for parents about digital technology and whatever refined topic of digital health literacy I end up uh, pursuing. I'm still in the comprehensive exam phase right now, so we're just sorting through some of these possibilities, but as much as the doctoral work will contribute to the academic community and that area of knowledge production, I am just so captivated by the idea of being able to put out a book or maybe one or, you know, a a second book, maybe um, like a, a video over of the book, you know, different mediums of communication that younger audiences can engage with that flow out of my work, but that also harken back to the discipline that got me engaged in the first place with higher education. So that reading, that love of literature is not going anywhere. And I think it would just be so incredibly special to be able to do that when the PhD is said and done. You know, in thinking, thinking about the time that you've spent doing your research and becoming ingrained in the work that you're doing, what's something about your research that you know or that you've learned that maybe most people don't know? So I think, again, because I made the pivot from the humanities over to the health sciences, that when we talk about our health, And this will not be new to anybody who's started or who's really involved in health work um, or the health field, but it really blew my mind (laughs) when I started learning that health is a state of, you know, overall well-being, but all of these social determinants of health that contribute to this state. So for example, your Uh, economic status, your culture, your gender identity. And so for my work with digital health literacy is overlaying that literacy piece. And by literacy, I'm not just talking about the ability to read and write, but more generally understood as a set of evolving competencies. So you know how to do certain things. So especially when we're engaging with so much information and, you know, art pieces online that how we understand everything that we come in contact with does affect our overall state as a human being. And I'm going to make the extended 
notion to say that it does affect our health in one way or another. So it was this radical repositioning for me of what it means to think about our health. And it's not just, do you have a cold? Do you feel like you can't get up today? It's, you know, emotional and spiritual and cultural. And I think more people could benefit from this understanding of health. I know I certainly did. And people who I talk to who aren't from this particular field find it almost revolutionary that we talk about and respect health in this way. So I am really thankful to be in what I'm going to call the health field because of that. And I think it's also made my own self-care practices change for the better because I'm picking out all the different parts of myself that I want to make sure I'm, I'm taking care of and nurturing. That's just beyond making sure I drink enough water and eat enough food and get enough sleep. So following this, thinking about Danica now, what advice would Danica now, where she is in her PhD, have for Danica at the beginning of her master's when she started grad school? That's a, you are full of great questions today. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I think if I could go back and talk to her, maybe grab a glass of wine or something. (laughs) I would say a couple of things. I think the first thing I would say to her is, it's okay to feel everything and it's okay to be a work in progress. You don't have to be perfect or present yourself perfectly for whatever that means to you, for everyone. You can look like you have it all together, but it's so much more rewarding and comforting when you let your guard down. Uh, Don't be scared of vulnerability. And I think the last thing that she would really need to hear is that, you know, whatever aches inside of you, whatever burns inside of you, whether that's passion or anger for maybe what you consider to be injustices around you, that it's not a bad thing. Like, don't run from it. Just stay with it and trust it and trust yourself because up until this point, you've had the world and all of these overarching beliefs and principles and systems telling you not to trust yourself. But this is the point where you need to start trusting yourself because something really amazing can happen if you allow yourself to do that. So thinking about past Danica, let's fast forward. Where do you think your grad school story is going to go? Who is future, Danica? Well, I'm going to be perfectly candid. It'd be fantastic if she landed a tenure track position. (laughs) But job market statistics and higher education aside, I think that future Danica really would thrive in a space where She gets to interact with people in what I'm going to call maybe a leadership capacity in the sense that I love being involved in things where I can bring people together and watch whatever unfolds 
unfolds before my eyes, whether that would be in a tenure track position, watching students engage in my classroom and stepping away and letting them start to think through some really complicated ideas or bringing participants together in maybe a more formal research capacity in digital health and seeing what comes out of that. Or to be like perfectly frank, I think there's also a version of myself that would enjoy any kind of position in higher ed where I could bring grad students together to talk with one another and learn from each other and let that fall out as it does. I'm not going to lie and say that I'm not worried about the future. I'm an anxious person that constantly weighs on my mind. And I'm also not going to lie and say that I wouldn't be heartbroken if I didn't get an opportunity that allowed me to stay in kind of a teacher researcher capacity because I think as doctoral students we all recognize the intense amount of time and labor and money that goes into this kind of training that we're lucky to do if we have the resources to do such kind of training but I think as long as I keep on this path of being really introspective that my world isn't going to crumble if certain opportunities don't work out. I'm just going to have to make another pivot like I've already done. And if the past has taught me anything, it's that I'm quite good at pivoting now, but also the pivoting is so transformational that I don't think it's ever going to be a mistake. So in some tenure track would be fantastic But tenure track is not the only, you know, beautiful possibility that I'm imagining for myself. Definitely. Now thinking about this, you know, you've mentioned future Danica as an academic, but who's future Danica as a person? I think as a person, she wants to take up space. And by that, I mean, she wants to be present in more activist circles and roles. Um, She wants to be present by showing up for people that she cares about and respects and loves. She also, unfortunately, because we're in a global pandemic, wants to see a lot of the world and experience different cultures and ways of thinking and knowing. I mean, we'll get hopefully out of the pandemic at some point in our lifetime but I do hope that travel will be something on there but I think at the end of the day she wants to be a person who can do away with codependency and who doesn't need to look for any kind of exterior assurance about who she is or what she's worth and that she can just be ecstatic with having herself as her own touch point and place of trust and security because I think with that as an end result she will be even better at showing up for all of those other people and causes that she cares deeply about okay what's something about you that people don't know well I've been more I guess vocal with this through some of my uh, social media profiles in the last couple of years, but I'm getting to the point now where I think it's sending up flares almost that I am a very high functioning, anxious person that I overthink 
most situations to the point where I either need a distraction to get myself from thinking less about it, or I end up crying, or I end up having to reach out to people to like make sure that they're okay. So although I've been talking about this idea of like feeling everything, I think when, and I've been told this, that when people first meet me, it looks like I have my shit together. And I am a really good performer at making it seem like I have it all sorted out. So I think for anyone listening, that is not the case. That has never been the case. And I'm working on being more transparent about that, not just for myself, but for anyone who may come across me and think that they are less than or that they are doing a poor job because we as human beings continually compare ourselves to everyone else. And I am so, so guilty of that, especially against other women who I admire or who threaten me, but threaten me in the most sincerest way because I just want to move through the world as maybe as gracefully or as engaged as they do. So I want to start breaking down that barrier because I don't want to be someone that someone else compares themselves to and then feels lesser about themselves because that is what I've done on this earth for 26 years now. And it sucks. And it's probably never going to go away. But if I can make it less for someone else, then that is something that I want to do. Absolutely. Are there any last notes that you want to leave upon or talk about? I think the last thing I would say to you and to anyone else listening into this podcast. So kudos if you're out there and listening. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a great experience for me and Monica's fabulous. So you made the right choice with your day today. Isn't that so nice? And also I'm just saying if Danica had a great time, then maybe any other grad student who wants to have a great time talking about their grad school experience and who they are as a person should probably get in contact with me and try to come on the podcast. So I'm going to stop plugging now and uh, yeah, please contact me if you want to be on the podcast. Thank you. And again, it may be a bit redundant, but whatever aches inside of you, whatever you feel is almost kind of like a burning inside of you, I'm going to go with a fire kind of metaphor here, but uh, let it burn. Don't be scared of that fieriness. If you feel it, it is you. And that's probably yourself sending you a flare that you need to return to yourself. Like you need you. So let yourself be consumed by it. And sometimes we need to burn things down. So other more beautiful things can grow from that. So hashtag pyromaniac is probably a good way (laughs) to sum that up. (laughs) Also note, please don't actually set things on fire. We don't condone that. Thank you. Okay. Are you good with leaving it on that note? Yeah. I mean, I cried. I laughed. We did air quotes. I think that was probably the most genuine interview I could have offered you today. So...
This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS. If you want to get in touch, email humansofgradschoolpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.